Thank you for tuning into the Apostolic Pentecostal Church podcast. You are currently listening to one of our iGrow series lessons. If you're in the Bloomington, Illinois area and want to sit in person, feel free to join us Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. for Bible study and Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. for worship in the Word. Can't make it in person? No big deal. Find us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram and search Apostolic Pentecostal Church. Either way, we'd love to fellowship and worship with you. We hope to see you. All right. So Daniel chapter 4. It's a great chapter in the book of Daniel. It's an interesting chapter. And fun fact, it's the only chapter in the uh, book that is not written by Daniel himself. And we're going to look more into that later. But just as a little bit of review, what did I do? There we go. <laughs> so as a little bit of a review, God allows Judah, the kingdom of uh, in Israel to be conquered, and many of these Judean people are taken as exiles to the uh, empire of Babylon, and among some of these people were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and these Hebrew boys are being trained to essentially be courtsmen in Babylon, and this is an attempt to indoctrinate them and fill them with Babylonian values and beliefs as a means to protect Nebuchadnezzar and his throne, and, but we see that there's a little bit of pushback from, hey, we got more happy people. Let's go. <laughs> so uh, we see that Daniel and these Hebrew boys are beginning to push back, though. They are purposing in their hearts not to defile themselves with the things of Babylon, and they are continuing to follow the ways of the Lord with grace and meekness, even though they are not in a godly environment. We also see that God is doing some pretty cool stuff. God begins to elevate these Hebrew boys in the kingdom of Babylon because of their faithfulness. And we saw last week when Philip taught that uh, even when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's faithfulness sent them to death's doorstep at the fiery furnace, that God gave death one of his spiritual uppercuts like he likes to do, and he walked with them through the fire and protected them. We also see that God is beginning to deal with Nebuchadnezzar in many ways. Uh, we see from the dream in chapter 2, that statue up there made of different metals that represent successive Gentile kingdoms, we see that from the interpretation of this dream that Daniel gave the king, that God rules in the kingdoms of men. And in Daniel chapter 2, verse 37, we see Nebuchadnezzar begin to kind of praise and honor God. He says, Your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret, or the interpretation of the dream. And even last week we saw that uh, in chapter 3, when God delivers the Hebrew boys from the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar begins to praise the Lord even further. This is kind of a long uh, passage, but bear with me. It says, and from Daniel chapter 3, verses 28, Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him, and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies, that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own. Therefore I make a decree that every people nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made a dunghill, because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. So Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to experience the Lord. He's beginning to acknowledge his power. However, he still does not have personal relationship with the Lord or accept him as his God. We see him refer to the Lord as the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not necessarily my God. But he is beginning to experience the Lord. While Nebuchadnezzar knows of God and even supports Daniel and the Hebrews and their faith in him, it's important to know that he still is not converted 
and in his heart. And we're going to see how this develops in chapter 4 a little bit. But there are three main things that we are going to look at in this chapter. And like I said, it's going to be Nebuchadnezzar's experience with God. Number two, we're going to continue with this theme that God rules in the kingdoms of men, like we've talked about over the past few lessons. And lastly, we're going to talk about pride and humility. So let's get into it. Uh, would anybody like to read the first two verses of the book? Sister Ellen, go ahead. Nebuchadnezzar the king, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. Awesome. So right off the bat, we see something new that we haven't seen in the book of Daniel up to this point. And like I said, up to this point, all the chapters we've discussed have been written by, you guessed it, Daniel. But chapter 4 was actually written by Nebuchadnezzar himself. This is kind of in a letter format. It's uh, the, from the beginning, we see that Nebuchadnezzar addresses himself. This is kind of like if you've read the epistles in the New Testament, it usually starts off by Paul saying, you know, like Paul, an apostle. He says who he is, and then he says unto, you know, whatever church he's writing to. So Nebuchadnezzar is essentially writing a letter. And this letter was sent throughout all the kingdom of Babylon. You know, uh, we see from verse 1 that it says that Nebuchadnezzar unto all nations, languages that dwell in all the earth. He's sending it all throughout Babylon and ultimately all the world. So there's got to be something significant about these, this letter that he's writing. And because of it, its significance, Daniel even included it in his own book. So verse 3 reads, How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. What in the world is going on here? <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, conqueror of the known world, the one who was ready to kill any wise man that couldn't provide him an answer, the one who was ready to send anyone that defied him to the belly of a fiery furnace, that guy is now wishing peace to be multiplied across all nations, people, and languages. What? Like, who are you and what have you done with Nebuchadnezzar, right? The guy who was indoctrinating the best and brightest of those that he conquered in order to protect his kingdom and ensure his rule is now giving praise to the one true God for his everlasting kingdom, his sovereignty, and his control that will endure Forever. Something instrumental has happened to the Babylonian king. Something significant has taken place to bring him to this point. And we're going to let Nebuchadnezzar walk us through his story. Amen? Yes. Amen. Before we go further, it's also important to note, this is kind of Nebuchadnezzar's own personal testimony. And he begins his testimony with praise to God. Think about it. You know, we love those like old school apostolic Pentecostal testimony services, right? Very rarely you will see somebody get up and say, you know, I am just doing a great job. I did so great. You know, I have accomplished so much and I am just floating high, right? No, our testimony should always draw attention to God our, and how in our weakness, God was made strong. We see from Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, that we overcome by what two things? By the power of the blood and by the word of our testimony. Your testimony should always be paired with God's glory and power and not your own. So we're seeing the theme of pride and humility coming to play here as well. The king, who as we've seen and will continue to see, can be pretty full of himself, has come to a place of not only praising God, but humbling himself enough to get out of God's spotlight. From the beginning, he is putting all the attention on Jehovah, the Most High God. Nebuchadnezzar 
is not just going to walk us through his experience with the Lord, but he's going to take us on a journey to his, uh, of his path to humility. So, man, I'm doing bad with these slides. I apologize. <laughs> All right. So, in chapter, in chapter 4, verse 4, it reads, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in mine house and flourishing in my palace. He was in a good place, riding high on the mountaintop. He was at peace, prospering in his rule. But God is getting ready to throw Nebuchadnezzar a familiar curveball, and he is going to dream another dream. Verse 5 says, I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Thank you, Philip. <laughs> therefore made I a decree, verse 6, therefore made I a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. Verse 7, then came in the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers, and I told the dream before them, but they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. So the king had another dream that he couldn't explain, and it troubled him yet again. Similar to the first dream, the king called all the wise men and the diviners of Babylon to interpret the dream for him, but they could not. It wasn't uh, necessarily as uh, monumental to Nebuchadnezzar at this time because he's not ready to like, kill every wise man that couldn't give him an answer, but it still troubled him. He still wanted an answer. And verse 8 reads, But at last... Came in, but at last Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And before him I told the dream, saying, verse 9, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubleth thee, tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen, and the interpretation thereof. The king remembered Daniel's interpretation of the first dream. And he knows that he is able to interpret this one as well. So he tells them him the dream. The contents of the dream, as recorded in verse 10, begins, Thus were the visions of mine head in my bed. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. The tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. Verse 12, The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much. And in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the bows thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and an holy one, that is referring to an angel, came down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree, and cut off his branches, shake off his leaves, and scatter his fruit. Let the beasts get away from under it, and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass and the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Almost done. Hang with, hang, hang with me a little bit. Let his heart be changed from a man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times pass over him. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. Last verse, verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. And now thou, O Belteshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof. For as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation but thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. Woo! That was a mouthful. <laughs> but, 
Let's kind of unpack the contents of this dream. Nebuchadnezzar sees a large tree that stretched into the heavens. It was very fruitful. It was strong. It was a source of strength and provision for all creatures. It had influence in its environment. Then an angel comes down from heaven and commands the tree to be cut down, its leaves to be scattered, its fruit to be taken, and its influence over the creatures of the land to be stripped. And some interesting imagery takes place next. It says that the tree's heart is then changed from a man's to a beast's, and it was to feed in the fields with the beasts. And all for the purpose of letting the living know that, here's our theme that we've been talking about, that the Most High God rules in the kingdoms of men. He sets up and cuts down whoever he wants to, and that he sets up the humblest of men. So after Nebuchadnezzar uh, unpacks the contents of the dream, he then asks Daniel for the interpretation. And here's what Daniel begins to say. And here's when uh, we begin to see Daniel, you know, uh, let the interpretation kind of come out. Verse 19 reads, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for one hour, and his thoughts troubled him. The king spake and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. Nebuchadnezzar is being really chill at this point about the dream. I can picture it. says that the dream troubled Daniel. I can just picture him doing you know, like one of those nervous pacings back and forth because he is nervous about the contents of this dream. And the king is like, bro, it's just a dream. You know, I had a dream before. It's just, it's fine. And why is Nebuchadnezzar not worried? He had the first dream, like I said, and God revealed to him the interpretation. He saw the implications of the first vision, yet he doesn't seem nervous at this moment. Why? Well, the, I, I was thinking just logically about it, and a few reasons that came to my mind was the first dream wasn't very personal, and it didn't really have immediate implications. He hears how God reigns in Gentile kingdoms and even begins to acknowledge God's power, and then he goes right back to ruling his kingdom business as usual. And, you know, there wasn't immediate implications. And he, it's easy to get behind the preacher when he's not calling you out for specific issues either. You know, it's real easy to get behind truth. Yeah, repent. Yeah, be baptized. But then when he says, you know, stop doing this, stop doing that, it's like, ooh, what? You know, but uh, God wasn't really calling Nebuchadnezzar out specifically in the first dream. His kingdom was a part of those successive kingdoms that God rules in, obviously. And we know that the contents of that dream are true. But it's possible that Nebuchadnezzar didn't feel it was, it was as instrumental as it actually was. So, here he is, thinking it's just another dream. But little does he know that God is about to get very personal with the king and hit him where it hurts. Would anybody like to read for me after this? Sorry, I kind of <laughs> took it all from myself. Yes, yes. Uh, verse 20, go ahead. The tree that thou sawest, which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heaven, and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all, under which the beast of the field dwelt, and upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation. It is thou, O king, thou art grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown and reacheth unto the heaven, and thy dominion to the end of the earth. Awesome. Let's pause right there for one second. So Daniel is like, no, 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 king, you don't get it. You think it's just another dream, but this tree that you dreamed of, it's you. King, 
You are fulfilling the value that Babylon was built on. You are making a name for yourself. You are powerful, you have influence, and you are basking in your own glory at this time. Nebuchadnezzar, you are the great tree. And if you wouldn't mind, Sister Jill, keep going with verse 23. And whereas the king saw a watcher and a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Hew the tree down and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field, till the seven times pass over him. <coughs> this is the interpretation of king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. One more verse. That they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Perfect, perfect. So we see Daniel is like, King, you have power, you have authority, you have this kingdom to yourself, but you're getting too big for your britches. You're getting too cocky and prideful with your accomplishments, and God is getting ready to strip your kingdom from you and humble you. Why? So that you realize where your power came from. So you know that your kingdom is not your own, but there is a God in heaven that has Babylon and your rule in the palm of his hand. And we see a similar interaction and a similar warning to Nebuchadnezzar. We see that in another dominant world powerhouse of a ruler actually in scripture. We see that with Pharaoh all the way back in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 9, God has already unleashed a few plagues across the nation of Egypt because Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites, God cho God's chosen people, he refuses to let them go from slavery. So God instructs Moses to go in before the Egyptian ruler and deliver him a message. And this message, would anybody like to read it for me? Joe, you want to read it for me? Gotcha. So go ahead, Exodus 9.13. And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning, and stand before Pharaoh. And say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For I, will, for I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart, and upon thy servants, and upon thy people, that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. Keep going, Joe. For now I will stretch out my hand, that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence, and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. And, and in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up, for to shew in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Awesome. We see even a chapter later, after uh, you know God instructs Moses to go in and talk with him, we see a chapter later that Pharaoh ultimately refuses again to let the Israelites go. And God asks him this question through Moses again. He says, Pharaoh, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? In so many words, God is saying, Pharaoh, the only reason that you even have the ability to rule, the only reason you can call yourself king and have an ounce of, quote, control is because I have allowed you to come to power. Oh, and by the way, the only reason I brought you to power was to show off my glory and my power and that my name will be pro proclaimed throughout all the world. And because you refuse to humble yourself before me, I will humble your kingdom. From the beginning, God has been control over the nations of men, from Nimrod to Pharaoh to Joe Biden nowadays. 
Don't be deceived. <laughs> Amen. Don't be deceived. God will not share His glory with another. God has set up who He wants to be in power at this time. From the beginning, He has been in control of the nations. You know, like I said, from Nimrod to Pharaoh, all of the rulers that this world has ever seen and will ever see. He is at work in the governments, the nations, and in every country. Even if that nation or ruler does not have godly motives, be not deceived. God will get the glory, and His will shall be done. These world rulers ain't got nothing on God. I mean, I think the Bible is pretty clear to show us that, that no nation can stand against the Almighty God. Uh, next slide, Philip. Uh, verse 26 in Daniel chapter 4, it says, And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee. After that, thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. So this last verse in the interpretation is basically Daniel saying, or God telling Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom will be restored unto you like it once was, and your glory will be restored unto you once you realize that God rules and you don't. Once you humble yourself. So, and then verse 27 also says, uh, Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. Daniel is like, Nebuchadnezzar, please listen to me. Put off your arrogance, get off yourself, change your ways, do what is right, because that is the only thing that will possibly save your rule. That is the only thing that will allow you to keep your kingdom. And you know what Nebuchadnezzar does in response to this interpretation? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Uh, it's kind of unclear what happened immediately after Daniel gave him the interpretation, but it's safe to assume that he didn't change too many things because just a year later in verse 28, it tells us that all these things came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And does somebody want to pick up reading for me at verse 29? Anybody? A volunteer? Nope. Sister Ella? Well, if he hasn't done it, sure. Go ahead, Nate. Yep, go ahead. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. Keep going, Nathan. Go to verse 33 for me. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, Till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like bird's claws. I know, it's gross, ain't it? <laughs> but Nebuchadnezzar doesn't seem to learn, does he? You know, Daniel pretty clearly gives him this interpretation. He's like, be humble, stop being arrogant. And, you know, we see later that, yeah. <laughs> so, just one year later, Nebuchadnezzar is like, oh. Is this not great Babylon that I have built with my majesty and my power? The Bible says that as soon as he said that, his kingdom was taken from him. God literally 
stripped him of everything that he had built, stripped him of everything that he had accomplished, and he was humbled immediately. And you talk about a humbling. In a moment, the most powerful man in the world lost his mind and is munching on grass like a shaggy animal. And <laughs> fun fact, actually. There is an actual mental disorder out there called lycanthropy where a person believes that they are transformed into an animal. And some believe that this is what God allowed to come over Nebuchadnezzar. And he was in this state of acting like a beast in the field for seven years. Seven years. Pride is a dangerous animal. As we've already talked through a little bit, pride is a mindset that God feels very strongly against. Because of this, we need to understand pride a little bit more. And we're going to talk about that. There's two sides to the coin of pride. Number one is the one that we all think about when we think about pride. Arrogance, you know, elevating yourself. This is the kind of pride that we see in Nebuchadnezzar. It's an attitude that says, look at me. Look what I've done and look how great I am. It's giving credit to yourself. Desiring for yourself to be promoted. Feeling entitled to acknowledgement from your peers and maybe even from God himself. This is, like I said, usually the most obvious form of pride. And as we've seen from Nebuchadnezzar, drawing attention to your own accomplishments, status, and abilities for the purpose of bringing glory to yourself is a swift way for God to humble you. He will not share his glory with another. And this is the pride that the psalmist warns, of, warns us of in Psalms chapter 75, verse 4. It says, I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Quite literally, do not toot your own horn. <laughs> I, was, I was going through verses of pride, and I was like, this was perfect, man. This was perfect. So, don't be arrogant. Don't elevate yourself. But there's another side to the coin of pride, like I said, and it's one that a lot of people might not realize is pride. But the second form of pride actually comes from degrading yourself. Tearing yourself down, comparing yourself to others, judging and condemning yourself. We see this form of pride, uh, you know, before he was storming into Pharaoh's palace saying, let my people go. We actually see this form of pride in Moses when God first calls him into ministry. When he's, he's been on the run from Egypt, we know that he killed an Egyptian and, you know, the Egyptians wanted to kill him in return. So he's on the run and he gets married, he starts working for his father-in-law and he's... Uh, attending to the sheep in uh, you know the desert and he comes across the burning bush and you know who could resist walking up to a bush when it's not being consumed right so this is you know like a lot of us probably know this is the first time that God speaks to Moses and says Moses I have heard the affliction of my people I have heard the cries of the Israelites come up before me and I am going to deliver them from their slavery, from their bondage. But I want you to go and be the one that facilitates this mass exodus. And Moses immediately, like God gives Moses a million reasons why he is qualified for the job. But it seems like almost every reason that God gives, Moses claps back with an excuse as to why he is not. Who am I, God, that I should lead? What, what should I say to them? They won't believe me. God, I stutter. I can't speak well. Send somebody else. And the Bible tells us that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. God tells Moses, who made man's mouth? Who made the dumb, the seeing, the blind, the deaf? Did not I? God is basically saying, Moses, nobody that, like we said, no nation can stand against you if I am on 
your side. So get up, go. I'll even give you your brother Aaron as a mouthpiece. You know, God was very patient with Moses, but God had to deal with Moses' pride. So that leads us to a couple conclusions. Pride can either push you to boast about yourself as a means to become prominent, or pride can lead you to a place where you are so unsure of yourself that you would rather be comfortable than step out into your God-given authority. In other words, pride either elevates the flesh or it preserves the flesh. Pride either steals glory from God by seeking it for yourself or it gives him no room to operate and obtain glory in the first place. In its broadest sense, pride is making everything about you, making everything about me, making everything about yourself. So, Nebuchadnezzar had pride, and God humbled him. Let's see where this humility takes him. Verse 34 reads, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. There it is. There's the Nebuchadnezzar that we saw at the beginning of the chapter. There's that Nebuchadnezzar that is not praising himself anymore, but is glorifying the God of heaven. Now, who wants to pick up in verse 35 and read through verse 37 for me? I will. Oh, go ahead, Granny. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand, or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time, my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me. And my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are true, and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. A powerful end. Nebuchadnezzar realized where his power came from. Compared to God, he was nothing. Power belongs unto him, and nobody can deliver out of the king of heaven's hand. Nebuchadnezzar, for the first time in a long while, had probably been humbled. You know, he was this world conqueror. You know, he was this king of the, basically the known world at the time. And probably for the first time, maybe ever, he had been humbled. And the Bible says that when he received humility, that is when his sanity and his kingdom was restored unto him. There's two important lessons that Nebuchadnezzar learned. The first, like we talked about, is that God is able to abase and cut down the prideful. But on the other end, he is also able to elevate the humble. Is not this what we've been seeing throughout the entire book of Daniel up to this point already? We see Daniel and the Hebrew boys who were in a obviously less than ideal situation, but they chose to acknowledge God in every way that they could. They chose to stand on his word, not to elevate themselves, but to give God the glory. They chose not to pity themselves. You know, they weren't constantly worrying about themselves in Babylon, but they were faithful to God and they were humble as they walked through this trial. Humility essentially is thinking about God and everybody else before yourself. And that's one thing that Daniel even suggests from back in verse 27 when he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, show mercy to the poor. A great way to show humility is not just by acknowledging God and his glory, but it also comes with getting your mind off of your own needs and then helping others through their needs. You know, I 
I heard a preacher say one time that God is, like, why did Jesus come? He came not so that he could be served, but to serve, you know? And we see that, we see this theme through scripture that whatever your need is, you will get it by giving it. You know, like if you need financial help, you know, they say, give and it shall be given unto you. If you need mercy, like pastor preached about on Sunday, show mercy to somebody else. You know, that is humility. Humility is showing to somebody else what you need. It's getting your mind off of your own needs and helping others. That is a great way to be humble. My dad always uh, told me this saying when I was a kid. He said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. So, humility is powerful. It's the thing that brought a pagan king of a wicked kingdom to honor the God of heaven. And it's the thing that allowed the Hebrew boys to stay close to that same God as they walked through a time of trial. Humility is the gateway to greatness. Because we don't accomplish anything in the kingdom of God by our own might or by our own power. But it is all by His Spirit, as Zechariah 4.6 tells us. You want to be first? Make yourself last. You want to see God's glory? Then humble yourself. Humility is also liberating as well. It, and it kind of takes away the pressure, honestly. You know, we live in a world where it's like, be strong, you know, stand for what you believe in. No matter what this world says, keep your back arched and your head held high and show no weakness. But in reality, God says, come to me. Humble yourself and admit your weakness because it is in that weakness where I can be made strong. You know, humility is the gateway to see God's glory in our lives. We are never going to accomplish anything by our own means. You know, we're never, I've learned, you know, I can't get up and do what God asked me to do by my own ability. But it always first comes with, and humility is hard sometimes, but it comes with acknowledging your weakness and saying, God, I humble myself before you and I need your help. You know, so humility is powerful and humility is what God seeks in his people. And I actually am at the end of my lesson, so we're probably going to have a little discussion here in a minute. But just in summary, Nebuchadnezzar was arrogant and prideful of his accomplishments. And because of this, God stripped him of his kingdom and humbled him. From this, we learn that God feels very strongly against pride and pride is like we talked about, it's either elevating the flesh or it's preserving the flesh. It's either saying, me, 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 look at me, I'm so great, or it's saying, I can't do anything. Or it's saying, you know, a woe is me, you know, focusing on your own needs, focusing on yourself more than God and others. From Nebuchadnezzar's experience, we learned that God can humble the prideful, but he will also elevate the humble. It's our job, I heard a quote from uh, Brother T.F. Tinney, one time, it, uh, it said, it's your job to humble yourself, and it's God's job to elevate you. If you insist on doing God's job, then he will do yours. <laughs> it's, it's funny. It's good, though. Ain't it? <laughs> Our goal should not be to find success or fulfillment or to even be elevated. Sister Jill, like you said, our goal is not to be elevated, but our goal should be to grow in humility, and then God is able to do the rest. Amen? Yeah, yeah. Amen. Does anybody have anything they want to share? Any questions? Any thoughts? Any comments? Oh.
I, I really like the part um, where Daniel gives him the, you know, the good counsel mm -hmm. and to see how Daniel loves the king. Yeah. You know, he's been living there with the king and serving the king, you know, with that excellent attitude. And, you know, walking in pride, you don't see the needs of others. Yeah. And so he could look and say, look at my kingdom that I built and just look above the plane of the needs of everybody else. His eyes were too locked. You know, he couldn't he couldn't see at the devastation that he had caused and and the people in, in his kingdom that were uh, that were hurting and so needy. And um, I have a testimony too, if you don't no, mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sometimes it's so hard to help people because we feel so inadequate and the needs are so overwhelming. Do you ever feel like that? Mm -hmm. I feel like that sometimes. Mm -hmm. And um, last week, uh, somebody kept coming to my mind that's Greek. And she kept coming to my mind, and she kept coming to my mind. And Jessica said, well, she's coming to my mind. And I said, well, there's a need. So uh, I text her, and I found out that not only can she not speak English, now her husband is in Oklahoma working away. And she has her two children alone at her house. One's a teenager and one's a young child. That overwhelms me. It really does. I can't speak her language, you know, not knowing how to relate to her. I had invited her to All Nations Sunday. That was an easy way to say, oh, I'm helping. But no, she didn't want to come to that. And I knew the Lord wanted me to do something. And I didn't know what it was. And I was so out of my comfort zone. And so... I prayed about it at home when I went to uh, my where I volunteer. I got the lady there to, to pray with me. I mean, I was just majorly out of my comfort zone. And so uh, I had lined it up to go by our house to see her. So I go and I'm like, what on earth are we going to do? We're not cooking. We don't have anything we're doing. We don't speak the same language. You know, what's going to happen here? So I go and we kind of talk for a few minutes. And she pulls out a Joyce Meyer devotional, and she says, would you help me learn to read this? <laughs> and so we go through and we talk about the Lord the whole time. And then she tells me in her broken English her testimony, which was just absolutely beautiful. And it, I can't tell you how it humbled me. I can't tell you what it did for me. To know that all I had to do was just go. God already had everything set up. And she shared with me more than I've ever shared with any person. Or let them see into me in 45 minutes in her broken language. She shared her life with me. And it was so beautiful. And it just, I was just amazed. I was just absolutely amazed. So I do think that I can be chief center. And they get, oh, my house is clean. Oh, I pull my ball wardrobe together. Oh, I'm going to teach a chapter on Daniel. And not see all the needs. But I find the needs overwhelm me if I look at them. So I just have to find that one need that he wants me to deal with and know that he's going to go before me. That's awesome. That's awesome. And that kind of reminds me of, you know, Moses. You know, like he saw this great task that God had for me. He's like, God, who am I to do this? You know, he saw his need and he was like, I can't, I can't. But, you know, we see, you know, that he, I, I heard a great quote one time. It was, God doesn't call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. 
He said, Moses, I didn't call you because you were qualified for the job, but I can make you qualified for the job because when you are weak, when you can't do it, Sister Melder, you know, like when you're going up against a task, like when you're trying to communicate to a woman in Greek, you know, God's like, I can do that. You know, like you can't, but I can't, you know. So part of humility is just recognizing, getting even off your self and your needs, like I said, and off what you can't do and focusing on the fact that God can do anything, you know. And, yeah. Brother Miller, did you have something? Yeah, I, I, just a short observation. I noticed that when Nebuchadnezzar would refer to uh, Daniel or the Hebrew boys, God, it was always the little G, the mm -hmm. little G, the little G, from chapter 1 all the way through. <coughs> and then at the very end, that very last verse, it's a big K. Yeah. And he calls him the king of heaven. So when God humbles you, when God has to step in like that, he can certainly change your perspective you know what's the scripture right. say oh magnify the lord well, mm -hmm. the lord can magnify oh, yeah. himself in your eyes oh yeah he don't need our help does he <laughs> but uh yeah you know uh yeah i'll i'll save it brother uh brother sister Jessica, go ahead. yeah um wow i can't believe i'm gonna share this so um today i just saw a different perspective on what you were talking about Mimi. um but uh, today, I um, this morning, my, my manager sent me a video to watch. Um, State Farm is having these hard conversations on mental health and having these, these known people, these big known people like um, uh, assistant vice presidents and just vice presidents come to the board, to the table to talk about um, their mental health and how... Um, just how, uh, just their testimony and how they've overcome or how they've, you know, processed those things. Um, and one of them is uh, actually one of the AVPs, the assistant vice presidents I support um, through my department. And actually, uh, she's one that is also Hispanic. Um, and I've known her through Hispanic avenues at State Farm. Um, and she's also someone that we ran into Potbelly a couple years ago, and she so remembered that impressed her that we were eating at Potbelly together as a family. Um, and I re I listened to her testimony, and I just was just a, a mess at the at my desk. I was in person today, um, and it just it it really resonated with me being Hispanic and being. Um, being a mom and not being able to have children and uh, adopting her her aunt's three children and just the the things that come with adoption you know there are things that the children have to overcome and what it brings into the family and different different things like that um, and I made a note and she's come to my mind a couple of times since yesterday and today and um, I made a note my, a mental note to reach out to her and tell her how impactful her testimony was and uh, how appreciative I was to hear that and how courageous that is for her as a as a as a leader at State Farm. Well, I was getting out of the elevator and there she is. She's there. <laughs> and I was like, oh hey, I I was just, you know, you've been on my mind. And she said, you know, I've been thinking about you too. And um, one thing that I need to mention as well is I met her, I ran into her at Home Goods in July, in early July, and she saw I was pregnant, I was expecting Ezra, and we hugged and we got to talk about him, and I was so excited, I got to tell her everything about him, about what I had experienced until that point, and 
I saw immediately um, after I got off the elevator, she was observing me, and you know, you see me pregnant and you don't. Um, and she was like, uh, how are you doing? And um, that question is always hard to answer for me. Um, and I told her I'm hanging on. I'm hanging on. And uh, she looked at me and she said, I don't see you're pregnant anymore. I said, I'm not. I said, he, he is, he's, he's been born and he's passed. And I, and I told her and she was like, and I told her around the time frame. And um, I can't begin to tell you how it felt to have this well-known ABP from State Farm just let me sit there and talk about my loss and how she was approachable and she was not in a, and you know, I know this isn't really Christian, like Christian based, but someone who doesn't follow Christ like we do can have the compassion and the encouragement to sit there and, and listen to my story. Who, who am I? I am just a little peep, a bullet in State Farm, 5,300 employees, 53,000 employees. Um, but like, I'm a blip. And, and for her to just literally bring me to a bench, sit me down, and let me talk, and you know, express myself and, you know, talk through mental health and talk through things that I've been, and, and also on the flip side, allowing me to talk about my God, allowing me to, you know, to just show her where I'm at at this point in time. I just, I really, I can't, I can't begin to tell you how much I just appreciated that because sometimes even on the other side, we see these people and we're like, I will never talk to them. There's no way I can approach them. There's no way they're human. And here I am. I got to have that kind of experience today. And it actually, instead of be making me feel like um, like I am in some sense of depression or anything or triggering me in any way, I, I've actually had a great day. I've been uplifted and I've been seen. So... I share that um, because I see that on the other side, you know, sometimes even us as people, we're afraid to approach or just to talk about our own, our own weaknesses because of a person and their stature or because we're afraid to, to um, ups, or upset people about our God. And, you know, I just, it was just a neat experience. And, no, and actually, yeah, thanks Jessica, that's awesome. That actually goes actually really good with Daniel, because uh, if you think about it, Daniel, when he first came into Babylon, he was probably in the weakest position he could have been in. You know, yes, he was, you know, in training, and he was on his way to be elevated, but he was a guy that was just taken from his home and was exiled, you know, he's just like, like a freshie, you know, he probably felt very weak in that situation, but Daniel stayed humble. In his weakness, you know, he... You know, he kind of acknowledged his weakness, but he still said, God, I still trust you through this. And Daniel's humility, Daniel keeping the faith, is eventually what led to the king being humbled and seeing the glory of God. So sometimes your humility might not be for you, but it might be for the people around you to see how great your God is. Right. You know, so that's something else we could think. Like, I feel like sometimes when we walk through trials, the first thing that I think of is, God, what am I doing wrong? You know, like, is this... Um, 
is this based off of my sin? Is this based off of something that I am doing wrong? But in reality, God could be trying to show himself to people around me that I could never even realize. You know, so your humility is not just for you. Everything we do is not just for us, but it's for the glory of God and to reveal his glory to everybody around us. Why did he save us? Why did he make us a holy nation, a royal priesthood? That we should show forth his light. The praises. I'm blanking on the verse, but that we should throw forth his praises. And into his marvelous light. Right. So, yeah. Be humble, because that will spread to everybody around you and glorify God. Right? Anybody have anything else before we close it out and pray? Good? Alright. Alright, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We glorify you and we praise you. Oh Lord, we come before you humbly, Lord. We humble ourselves before you. We declare that there is nobody like you, Jesus. Nobody can heal like you can, Lord. Nobody can deliver like you can. Nobody can deliver out of your hand, Jesus. We know, Jesus, that as we walk through this life, God, everything we face, Lord, we are in your hands. And we pray, Jesus, that you will let your light shine through us, God. Let our humility, Lord, radiate to everybody around us to see your glory. And to know that you are the one true God. To know that you are King, Lord. You are our Savior. And in you is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Oh God, we love you and we praise you, Lord. We thank you for humility. I pray that you would impart holiness and humility to every single heart. And you would let us walk in your way of truth. And we would glorify you with everything that we say, everything that we do, Lord. And every way that we act. I pray that you would be glorified. Lord, and you would reveal yourself to this world. We thank you and we praise you, Lord. Be with the body, Lord Jesus. Be with us as we go. And we pray that you would let your kingdom come and you would let your perfect will be done. And we said it all in Jesus' name. Amen.